are listening to an extra shot episode on the Project Zion podcast, a shorter episode that lets you get your Project Zion fix in between our full-length episodes. It might be shorter time-wise, but hopefully not in content. So regardless of the temperature at which you prefer your caffeine, sit back and enjoy this extra shot. talking about All Saints Day, and All Saints is fairly new to observing um, its tradition in Community of Christ. I think when we talked with Jane Gardner, she told us that last year was the first time All Saints appeared on our calendar in Community of Christ and in our Worship Helps. If you look for 2017, you will find a worship service for All Saints, and We encourage everyone to take a look at that on the Community of Christ website. But as we've been talking about All Saints and the tradition of remembering those who've gone before and the contributions they've made in Christian community and to our own faith, we thought we might want to talk a little bit about who the saints might be in Community of Christ. Not in a way that we would uh, pray to them for intercession, but rather that we recognize how they've shaped and formed us as a denomination, as a community, and in our own discipleship. And to help us with that discussion, we're here today with Locke Mackay. Locke is the Director of Historic Sites for Community of Christ, and he also serves as an apostle and uh, as a member of the Council of Twelve. So welcome, Locke, to Common Grounds. Thrilled to be with you, Karen. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself for the listener that may just be tuning in to this episode? I was born and raised in eastern Jackson County, Missouri. My father is Australian. His family joined uh, Community of Christ there in the 18, probably 80s. My mom's family uh, signed up in 1830 in upstate New York. Um, So raised in the tradition, uh, but did not fall in love with it until my early 20s when I signed up for a museum management internship, landed in Nauvoo, Illinois, and then went on to Kirtland, Ohio. Uh, So um, early 20s, uh, just became passionate about our story. So you are married, you have a lovely spouse, and you live in Nauvoo now, don't you? I do, yeah. Um, So born and raised in Jackson County, 15 years in Kirtland, Ohio. While living in Kirtland, I met uh, Kristen, my uh, spouse, in Joseph Smith's Red Brick store in Nauvoo on a visit there. Okay, um, there's something kind of weird about that, but okay. Spent a number of years together in Kirtland, and then we moved to Nauvoo in 2007. So uh, I have never lived in any place that was not significant in church history. Who would you consider maybe our most uh, prominent candidates for sainthood in the Restoration? So All Saints Day is new to me, but it turns out I have been thinking about this for many years in the context of heroes from our story, heroes from our journey, not suggesting that that any of the people I'll talk about today um, were perfect. We're all complex people um, capable of great good and and sometimes not so great good. 
So um, although I've thought of these people as heroes, and I really like thinking of them as candidates for sainthood, um, I recognize that uh, they're, they're just people like you and I. But among my favorite people, the people that I think we can and should learn more about are John Coral. John was in Ashtabula, Ohio in the early 1830s. He heard that his friend Sidney Rigdon had become a Latter-day Saint, and John traveled to Kirtland to save him. Uh, didn't turn out quite as John planned, and he soon joined Sidney in the waters of baptism. Uh, he was a very, I think, kind of even-keeled person um, and quite talented. One account describes John as the architect of Kirtland Temple. I don't think he was. I think he supervised the, the finishing of the building. But whenever we ended up in conflict with neighbors, with rare exception, John is the person that we wanted to represent us in those negotiations. He was highly respected, both by Latter-day Saints and non-Latter-day Saints. Um, fast forward to far west Missouri, and John began to take exception to the militarism of the church during that period. Uh, he became a dissenter uh, and eventually was um, warned out and then chased out. He had reason to fear for his safety, and he fled our community in the far west Missouri period. So had been a prominent leader, but, but fled. Um, he was opposed to the Danites, again, opposed to the, the militarism of that period. Uh, he strongly opposed both the suppression of dissent and the church's efforts to beat plowshares into swords. And as a result, he was made to feel unwelcome and unsafe. After he fled, he was eventually excommunicated or removed from membership. So most folks would be bitter and angry at that point. Rather than leaving his persecutors, and I'm embarrassed to say that was us in this case, so rather than leaving his persecutors to their fate, John sold his property and began giving money to the church's poor to help them flee. There's a nice uh, brief biography of John um, in a signature title, uh, and John apparently eventually gave $2,100 to nearly 160 needy church families, including those with whom he had significant disagreements. So the people who were driving him out, he is helping them financially as they, in turn, were being driven from Missouri. And if that wasn't enough, we had previously elected John to represent us in the Missouri State Legislature. Despite the way we were treating him, he went to Jefferson City, Missouri, to the state capitol, and fought for the very people who were persecuting him, fought to try and protect the rights of our church members. After his term in the legislature ended, John Coral removed to Illinois. He died there in Quincy in 1843, nearly penniless. Um, a hero from our story. I think he is one that, that I would nominate for sainthood. So how do you see the legacy of John Coral manifest in how Community of Christ um, lives and expresses our ministries of peacemaking and conflict resolution today? What would his legacy 
be in that. He responded to that section 95 call to turn the other cheek, not once, not twice, but three times uh, and even more. Um, so a model for us in, in choosing a path other than violence. But we also are called to um, do our best to abolish, po abolish poverty and end needless suffering. And that includes a call to compassionate ministries. Uh, and I think John models that um, amazingly well. So in the, uh, in the Catholic and, and Episcopal traditions, you would have patron saints. And I can see John Coral being the patron saint of peacemaking or the patron saint of almsgiving of uh, a number of things in that. So a true um, hero of the Restoration, who else would you nominate for sainthood? I would also nominate Alexander Donovan, who, of course, was not uh, a Latter-day Saint, but a good friend of the saints. He was an attorney in Missouri, and he uh, worked for Latter-day Saints at times, defending them. Um, he also ended up being a Missouri state militiaman, and he, of course, is the person who stepped in when Joseph Smith was court-martialed and sentenced to death after the Mormon War in 1838 Missouri. Um, Donovan stepped in and told his commanding officer that he believed that that sentence was illegal. Um, Donovan argued that you cannot court-martial somebody who is not in the militia, that it's unconstitutional. Turns out it wasn't until 1866, I think it was ex parte Milligan, that the uh, Supreme Court agreed. So Donovan was early in that one, but um, he stepped in and basically told his commanding officer that uh, if he carried out that sentence if Joseph Smith was executed, Donovan would hold him accountable for murder. Um, so saved Joseph. Uh, and in Community Christ, we have honored Alexander Donovan for his, um, his protection of Joseph by naming Lake Donovan a, a retreat center, one of our, our reunion grounds in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, after him. Uh, so Alexander Donovan would also get my vote, even though he's outside the tradition, but I don't care. I'm going to claim him. We'll claim him for that, for Alexander Donovan. There's also a town named Donovan in southern Missouri. So we have uh, two gentlemen who you've named as uh, possible saints of the Restoration. Do you have any women who would fall into that category for you? We do have women, and I have to start with one of my favorite, actually not one of my favorites, my favorite, uh, Emma Hale Smith Biderman. I am a, uh, a big fan of Team Emma. Um, I love uh, Emma's story, and I think she models for us in so many ways um, a Christ-like life, being the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, an amazing, amazing woman. She had, um, she and Joseph had eleven children, nine of their own, and two adopted. And of those, only five made it to adulthood. I sometimes wonder if that's why Emma didn't fill her home with the motherless. Um, she was constantly taking in orphans. And I would love to see somebody start compiling a list of all of the children that Joseph and Emma and then Emma took in. Um, and she did that throughout her life. Her home was always open not just to children, but of course she also often supplemented their living by running a boarding house. But with the children, it was clearly not that. It was more than that. Um, Emma um, 
modeled what we're called to do in healing those who hurt. Uh, a great example of that is right after the Latter-day Saints arrive in 1839 Nauvoo, malaria is raging through the community. Something like 17% of the people who die in 1840s Nauvoo die of malaria. August and September are the dying months. Apparently it gets worse as you get into the summer. The frost hits, the mosquitoes are killed, things calm down, and then it would start again the next spring. But by the fall of 1839, Emma had taken in as many as 12 people sick with malaria, and she's trying to nurse them back to health. She only has two rooms in her house. So 12 people, two rooms. Joseph is gone for much of that. He's gone to Washington, D.C. to meet with U.S. President Martin Van Buren and ask for help after being driven from Missouri. It is so crowded in the Smith home in Nauvoo that Emma has to move the family into a tent in the yard to make room for the sick. So a wonderful example of helping those who hurt. Emma also tried to instill in her children and was successful, I believe, especially with Joseph Smith III, uh, the call to be peacemakers. Mm -hmm. Joseph III in his memoirs talks about he signed up for a little while uh, with something called Bailey's Boys Troops. They were uh, a children's um, auxiliary to the Nauvoo Legion, the state militia. But he said that he soon worked his way out of Bailey's Boys Troops, he believed because uh, his mother was not a fan, um, Emma not a fan of having her children involved in that. Uh, Emma also, of course, stood up for the marginalized and those at risk, including in her opposition to plural marriage. It's a really complex and painful topic, but my, my own take is that uh, Emma, I think, was probably convinced by Joseph that initially it's only a, a spiritual union, and I think she probably went along with it for a few short, short seconds and then came to realize at some point that perhaps it was more complex than that, um, and she became a significant opponent of plural marriage. Um, most of the source material on, on polygamy on plural marriage is decades after the fact, and, and I just don't trust much of it. Um, because we're all so emotional about the topic that that I just don't think you can pay much attention to most of those sources. There are a few sources from the time, though. William Clayton, who's a scribe for Joseph, is writing about plural marriage and Emma at the time, and he describes Hiram, who was opposed to plural marriage, but convinced by Brigham Young it was of God. Hiram saying to Joseph, if you'll just have a revelation, I'll take it to Emma and, and I can convince her that it's it's good. Joseph said, I don't think so, Hiram. Um, but Hiram was pretty sure he could do it, so they gave it a try. This apparently happens upstairs in the red brick store in Nauvoo in Joseph's office. Joseph dictates. Um, William Clayton, the scribe, writes it down, what would become LDS Section 132 on plural marriage. They hand the document to Hiram. Off he goes, quickly to return and say, I have never had a worse talking to in all my life. <laughs> I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, uh, but Emma, it seems, fairly quickly began to use the Nauvoo Female Relief Society to battle plural marriage as well. Now, the, the, the purpose of the society was to find jobs for the widows and food for the poor. And they did that with Emma Smith as president. But they also were tasked with upholding the virtues of the community. And I believe Emma interpreted that to mean to, to try and stamp out plural marriage or polygamy. Um, 
this again is really complex. I think there's decent evidence to suggest that she was almost successful. Um, I, I think there's decent evidence to suggest that prior to Joseph's death, he decided that plural marriage wasn't such a good idea and was trying to figure out how to extricate himself. William Law says that uh, that Hiram came to him and said, we've stopped. Law didn't believe him. Um, William Marks says that. Joseph came to him and says, I thought it was a great idea. I now believe it's a mistake. Let's try and get it stopped. And when you really read the last meeting of the Relief Society, those minutes, Emma is saying, we should listen to what our leaders are saying publicly. And if they are truly repentant, we should forgive them. I think that's a, another piece of that puzzle. But I think Emma trying to stand up in a very difficult and, and challenging time uh, for the women of the community. Can you tell us a little bit about what Emma's life was like um, after uh, Joseph and Hiram were killed and she stayed in Nauvoo? Emma stayed in Nauvoo after Joseph's death. Uh, initially, things calmed down. Uh, they had been renting the mansion house or leasing their home to Ebenezer Robinson. So Emma and Joseph lived in it, but Robinson ran the, the hotel part. Um, Joseph's killed. Fairly quickly, Robinson subleases to William Marks, and Emma moves back to the homestead, uh, their, their first Nauvoo home. It's just diagonally across the street from the mansion. It was from there, though, that as things heated up again, Emma fled in September of 1846 as the Battle of Nauvoo was breaking out. I don't use the term mobs lightly, but I think this group really was. They uh, came in with cannons to drive the last of the Latter-day Saints out. A group called New Citizens, non-Latter-day Saints who had moved into Nauvoo to buy empty homes and businesses, joined with remaining Latter-day Saints. They're fighting back and had some improvised cannons as well. So Emma flees with her, her children. They get on the steamboat Toby and steam upriver to Fulton, Illinois. And Emma had family in the area. Um, after a few months, though, maybe five months, she got word that the person she had leased her hotel to by that time, uh, Mr. Ventoul, was about to steal all her furniture once the river thawed and he could sail south with a flatboat. So she rushed back, caught him, evicted him, moved back into the mansion. While Emma was in Fulton, she got a letter from a man named Louis Biderman inquiring as to whether or not she might be willing to lease the mansion to him and his brother to run the hotel. And, you know, Mr. Ventoul was already in there, so she wasn't quite sure how to handle that. But um, that might uh, have been one of their earliest communications. But my sense is they probably knew each other even earlier. Lewis had been a leader of the New Citizens. He had been one of the leaders of the group fighting to protect remaining Latter-day Saints. We often forget that about him, that, that he was fighting to protect those who remained in Nauvoo. And it's possible that they even met earlier than that. There's an, a newspaper interview um, decades later where Lewis describes going to Nauvoo with a friend who was a phrenologist the people who would look yeah. at bumps on your head and believe that they could tell things about your personality. Lewis went with a friend, and they apparently did a reading on Joseph. So this is even before Joseph's assassination. Um, possible that he even met Emma that early, so pre-June of 44. But uh, at any rate, th that letter strikes up a correspondence. Um, they eventually start courting. Uh, there's some great stories about their courting together. Uh, Joseph III in his memoirs describes Lewis, who was apparently 
uh, very dapper, kind of a fancy dresser. Lewis came calling one day, uh, and he looks up, and there in the second floor window is Emma with young Joseph III beside her. Lewis takes off his top hat, does this really stiff, formal bow to Emma. As he stands back up, he runs into the clothesline and knocks his toupee off. <laughs> um, Emma married him anyway. Uh, when you read their letters, it's clear that this was not a marriage of convenience. There, there really was love in this marriage. Um, Lewis, um, again, we remember often his struggles. He drank too much, like many, including many in the church, did at the time. Um, but he, in, in many ways, um, had a lot of, I think, personality traits similar to Joseph's. He was incredibly generous. If you were hungry, there was always room at Lewis's table for you. He had a great sense of humor. He loved playing jokes on people, tricks on people. Uh, if you visited Lewis and Emma, um, he kept a pet bat on the mantle above the fireplace. Uh, it was a cigar box with holes drilled in it so the bat could breathe. But you'd get really intrigued by this bat, and finally he'd pop open the box. And there was a big chunk of red brick, which of course is a brick bat. <laughs> Um, his pet bat. Uh, he told stories to visitors to Nauvoo of tunnels dug into the limestone from the Nauvoo house um, across the river or from the mansion house to the temple a mile away. Uh, there's a newspaper editor who says, you know, Lewis is telling tales again. Some people object, but I say that if the visitors are foolish, foolish enough to believe them, they deserve what they get. But there are still people looking for those tunnels in Nauvoo today because of these stories that Lewis told. So um, I, I think in many ways, um, you know, again, um, cared deeply about the impoverished, great sense of humor, kind of a fancy dresser. Uh, but he also had his challenges. Uh, maybe the biggest challenge for Emma and Lewis, when Emma was 59, Lewis had an affair and fathered a child. After a number of years, the mom came to Emma and suggested that she couldn't care for Charlie, the little boy, anymore, and asked Emma if she might take him in. This is according to the vitamin family tradition, and Emma did. Um, she raised Charlie as her own, and Charlie left affidavits talking about the kindness of Emma to him. That's setting the bar pretty high. I'm not suggesting that everybody said, oh, this is Lewis's illegitimate child. Welcome <laughs> to the home. Um, uh, that Joseph III said there was never any discussion about that. My sense is that, that the family understood that, though. And prior to um, Emma's death, she apparently asked um, Lewis uh, if after her death she, Lewis would marry Nancy, the mother, so that Charlie would continue to have both a mother and a father, and Lewis did. Um, I'm a huge fan of Emma modeling in so many ways what we think of as our mission initiatives. Um, she's a peacemaker. She um, cares deeply about those who are suffering, again, filling her home with orphans. Um, I'm a little worried, though, that in recent years, as um, the broader Latter-day Saint tradition has started to rediscover Emma and embrace her, that we've almost started to do to Emma what at times was done to Joseph in the past, put him on the pedestal uh, as if he could do no wrong. Mm -hmm. And Emma, of course, um, just like the rest of us, is complex. 
and I'm sure uh, had her challenges as well. But as a saint of the restoration and the reorganization, we can see the traits that Emma has passed on to Community of Christ um, in our everyday expression of how we are. In fact, we often refer to ourselves as Emma's church in a kind of loving uh, tribute to her. Uh, you said earlier that she was um, a caretaker of the motherless, and so it made me think of a patron, patron saint of the motherless in physical and emotional uh, motherless in a way. So do you have uh, any other saints that you'd like to share w uh, with us? I do. Uh, we've touched on Emma and uh, her impact on our children. So, of course, I have to talk about Joseph Smith III, who I think was profoundly impacted by Emma, including kind of her even temperament. Uh, Emma at one point suggested that if Joseph, her husband, late husband, had better understood the law, that things would have gone better for him. So Joseph Smith III studied law in Canton, Illinois, as a young man. Uh, grew up to be a justice of the peace in Nauvoo. And he inherited both Emma and Joseph's desire to help those on the fringes, on the margins. So Joseph Smith III is elected justice of the peace in Nauvoo in 1857. It's kind of a combination sheriff and judge. Starts serving in 1858. He then joins with the reorganization in 1860, and the locals are not amused. They're basically, um, they pass resolutions town, township by township forbidding Joseph III from preaching or praying in their townships. Now that, that's highly problematic. Joseph III knew it. He demanded that they sign the resolutions, and they were afraid to. They didn't, so he ignored them, went about his business. But in that fairly heated climate, Joseph III eventually has to run for re-election. He knows he's in trouble. He wins in what he calls a landslide. I think that's maybe 13 votes in Nauvoo politics, but here's why he won, he said. By the early 1860s, almost everybody living in Nauvoo was some kind of immigrant, some kind of Germanic people, Germany, Austrian, Swiss. Joseph III said that as Justice of the Peace, he believed those people were being taken advantage of because of their lack of familiarity with our language and customs, he said. So to try and protect them, he often did their legal work for free. So uh, helping those on the margins, those most at risk. Um, he uh, also, years later, ran into a man named Thomas Sharp sitting in the shade of the Carthage, Illinois courthouse. Carthage, the county seat of Hancock County. Um, Joseph III recognized this man as the newspaper editor from the 1840s of the Warsaw Signal. And if any one person is most responsible for the death of Joseph and Hiram, it's Thomas Sharp. He had called for the use of powder and ball to be rid of the Mormon problem. And one account has him pulling a trigger at Carthage. Joseph III saw him, recognized him, said good morning. That's the end of it. That's it. But when some of our church members found out that Joseph III had dared to speak to the man responsible for the death of his father, they got angry. You know, you're, you're an embarrassment. How dare you? Well, that made Joseph III really angry. He published a letter in the Saints Herald, our uh, newspaper at the time. And uh, the article is called required to forgive. And in that article, 
he made it abundantly clear that he forgave Thomas Sharp mm -hmm. for any culpability he had in the death of his father and uncle. Joseph III explained that any judgment to be had was for the hereafter. It was not his place to, to judge. And he said, we remember that our blessed Lord, our living exemplar, when suffering from the cruel pangs inflicted upon him to his death, lifted his heart to his father and said, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, and again, made it clear that, that we were all called to do the same. Um, like his mother, setting the bar pretty high. Definitely. So Joseph Smith III died, uh, would be probably beyond a saint in the reorganization, yeah. as he's the first prophet president of the reorganization. So moving from the restoration to reorganization, who might be... Um, nominated for sainthood out of that experience from 1860 forward. I'm going to jump well ahead and across the Atlantic to um, somebody that I knew as Uncle Frank, um, Frank Edwards. He's a young Englishman. It's 1916. World War I is raging. Uh, Frank is a member of the reorganization, now Community Christ in England. He's drafted and he refuses to serve. He knows that if drafted and if fighting, he might well end up across the battlefield from a fellow Christian, um, and, and he might be required to spill the blood uh, of a brother in Christ. And he simply couldn't do it. He refused to serve. Uh, he's court-martialed, and as part of his hearing, he's asked, okay, so you won't fight, uh, how about we put you on a minesweeper? And he apparently said, well, I'll be happy to serve on a minesweeper as long as I can sweep English mines as well as German. That, that didn't uh, go so well in the hearing. He is convicted and sentenced to uh, prison, and he served a number of years uh, before being released at the end of the war. So um, Uncle Frank... Uh, better known as F. Henry Edwards, a member of the Community of Christ First Presidency for many years, and some would argue one of the brightest minds in the 20th century church. And is still quoted today, in fact, oft quoted today in many of our congregational Sunday school experiences. You'll hear references to F. Henry, and that's who they're talking about, um, as you mentioned, Uncle Frank. One more um potential saint of the reorganization, Locke, who would you nominate? So I'm going to go with Ed Guy. If there was such a thing as an, a Community Christ Jesuit, it's Ed Guy. Uh, much of what I know of Ed came from Dr. Richard Tro, a friend of Ed's. Um, so Ed was born in 1934 in Santa Monica, California. Um, unlike Ephraim Henry Edwards, uh, Ed served in the U.S. Army, in this case, from 1952 to 1955, and then in order to fund his education at Graceland University, uh, Ed worked in construction, he was a logger, worked on fishing boats in Alaska, and he worked as a forest firefighter or smoke jumper in Idaho. He went on to get a master's degree in social work in Kansas City, and eventually worked in Central America in some of the 
poorest areas and some of the poorest cities and some of the poorest countries. And he devoted his life to laboring as a social worker, development expert, advocate, missionary, and pastor in Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and elsewhere. Ed often went hungry so that others might be fed. He built houses for the homeless while having no place to lay his own head. He worked to teach the sick how to find health care in their own countries. And he put his own life in jeopardy to search for the disappeared ones who were swallowed up in political turmoil. And he later worked on trying to find children who had been stolen from their families in some of those political conflicts. When Ed walked the streets of the places he offered ministry, hundreds of people would call out to him by name. Following a heart attack, Ed died in Guatemala in September of 2001. There was a wonderful tribute to Ed Guy written by Dale Smalljohn, who had worked with Ed decades earlier as a smoke jumper. Dale called the tribute White Boots, not for the color, but for the brand. But Dale said that as a smoke jumper, every firefighter had a pair of white boots. Every firefighter but Ed. And according to Dale, there was only one reason that Ed didn't have them. They cost too much. Dale describes Ed as never buying anything that he didn't absolutely have to have. And even then, always buying used. He was a very careful steward of his resources so that the surplus could go to those in need. Uh, I need to, to verify this, but according to Dale, at one point, the church gave, made the mistake of giving Ed a car to help with his ministries. According to Dale, Ed sold the car and gave the money to the poor, um, kind of summarizing his life. Um, Ed had a heart attack at one point, way up in the Honduran mansion uh, mountains. Um, he lay on a cot for about a month, thinking that he would die at any time. He said that he thought about his life, knowing that all he had to do was let go and his life would be over. This is a, a Small John quote. I questioned how God would grade my life. I'm sorry, it's Small John quoting Ed. I questioned how God would grade my life and decided if I died then, I had probably earned a D, Ed said. I thought maybe I should let go and take the D before I really screwed up. <laughs> That's a great quote. Uh, Ed Guy, uh, a Jesuit, and, and definitely a candidate for sainthood. And a patron saint of missionaries. And having heard Ed Guy's stories in my growing up, um, I would agree with you about his ministry and contribution to Community of Christ. So I want to thank you, Locke, for sharing these stories uh, with us. As we've talked about with uh, All Saints, one of the ways traditionally that All Saints is observed is with the reading of the Beatitudes. And so to close our discussion today, I'm just going to read the Beatitudes from the hymn, the Beatitudes, which is actually, actually sung to the tune Ode to Joy, which we're not going to do, but we'll close with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for God's kingdom shall be theirs. Blessed are those who mourn with grieving, they of God shall be the heirs. They shall not be lost, forsaken, but shall comfort 
people receive, God will bless them with his mercy and their every fear relieve. Blessed are the meek and lowly, God shall give them of the earth. Blessed are they who thirst for rightness, God shall slake their hungering. God shall bless the ones whose mercy mirrors his abundant grace. God will bless them now forevermore. They in heaven shall have a place. So again, thank you uh, for visiting with us about All Saints and Community of Christ Saints. And hopefully we'll continue this with some other um, history experts in Community of Christ who can share with us on this topic. So thank you for listening to the episode. I'm Karen Peter here with Block Mackay, and this is Common Ground, part of the Project Zion podcast. Stay tuned. Our next episode will be um, talking about the coming Advent season. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 